If you want to get stuff done, then you have come to the right place. This is the Get Stuff Done podcast, brought to you in association with RDI Worldwide, a weekly interview series with prominent and diverse people from around the world who will share their own unique insights on what it takes to get stuff done and their personal strategies for doing so. My name is Gordon Dudley, the creator of the Get Stuff Done project and host of this podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you enjoy this episode and would love to hear your feedback anytime. Let's get stuff done. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Get Stuff Done podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Dudley, and I'm once again absolutely thrilled to be joined by another fantastic guest. Today, I'm joined by Nicola Weir, who is currently a partner at Deloitte. She's based in Seoul, but originally from the UK, like myself, and has been with the firm for a great many years, uh, before which she was with uh, another accounting firm. And over the course of her career, she has been able to work in the UK, in East Africa, in Nepal, Singapore, Indonesia. And as I mentioned, she is now based here in Korea with her uh, husband and two kids. One of her specialities is uh, being an advocate for women's empowerment. And in fact, she has actually dabbled in the uh, childcare space, having developed an app in the past, which is definitely something that I'm going to ask her about uh, in today's talk. She uh, is a great uh, friend of mine. Uh, we have known each other for most of the time that she's uh, been here um, in Seoul. And I'm really looking forward to talking to her uh, because I believe that she has a lot to say about what it takes to get stuff done. So, Nicola, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for that warm welcome, Gordon. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you have come to be a uh, senior partner at uh, Deloitte, one of the world's leading consulting and um, accounting firms. Um, well, I'm not quite sure I'd say I was senior just yet, um, but, you know, that's on that's on the to-do list. Um, but I have had a really... Um, really varied journey actually in Deloitte and, and Deloitte have been am amazingly supportive um, of, of, of enabling me to continue to to move around the world with them. Um, so I started out in a classic consulting um, role and, and progressed through that for many years and then had an amazing opportunity to go and be a director in the technology practice um, in East Africa and so help set up the tech practice there in Tanzania. Um, and then moved to um, Deloitte Mozambique, where I helped with the merger between Mozambique and the South African office. And then took a little break after um, a couple of kids. And um, I can tell you a bit more about what, what we achieved in the break. Um, but then moved to Nepal, again, not with Deloitte, but eventually went back to the UK um, and rejoined Deloitte uh, and had a really interesting experience in the in operations and then heading up societal investments, societal impact, and then the um, carbon program and around um, environmental and ESG, and then ran that across the UK and Europe before taking on a similar role um, for Asia Pacific. Um, and now what I, I am head of ESG in Deloitte Korea, um, and then 
also uh, look after what we call internal sustainability for Asia Pacific. Fantastic. I mean, I mean, a, a, a wide range of specialty areas, a diverse range of countries. And, and one of the things that stuck out to me right away is that one of my previous firms told me that were I to leave, I would never be able to return. That's their oh. policy, their, their standard policy that if you leave, you are not uh, welcome back. But it seems that Deloitte have quite quite the opposite kind of policy. And, and actually, you know, I, I hear other companies really benefit from developing a strong alumni network mm. uh, to be able to capitalize on people um, who can go out and gain other skills, other experiences and return fresh into new areas uh, and bringing, bringing new um, expertise. And it seems like uh, that was the case for you. Oh, absolutely. Our mobility program is, is absolutely outstanding. Um, and, and I think that the point about network is absolutely key. And I think that's been a, a, a big thing in, in me getting stuff done is, is I make a, my network's important to me. Relationships are important to me. Um, and ultimately a company like Deloitte is a people business. So, um, investing in your network and building those relationships. Um, I think has kind of eased the path somewhat, but the the mobility program is there's a, there's lots of opportunities. It, it costs so much to hire these days that actually, um, it, you know, investing in really smart programs with your people is key. Absolutely, preaching to the choir. Retention can be a, a fantastic way to to. Uh, I mean, not. I mean, it always we always talk about uh, what what drives companies the quickest is the bottom line, and if uh, costs can be saved by retaining people, but that's that's only the half of it, right? It's it's about the upside uh, potential uh, that is realised by having somebody developed, as you said, um, and invested in. You touched on the the very uh, name of this podcast, Getting Stuff Done. So I'll, I'll jump straight in with the, the standard questions that I love to ask all of my guests, um, which is, you know, what is it for you that makes you get stuff done? Or, or what is it that you feel has driven you to get so much done um, in your career so far? Um, it's probably from being a kid. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe all your guests say that. Um, but I, you know, I was, I grew up on a council estate in the UK and both my parents, um, had two jobs each and, and they had a very strong worth ethic, worth ethic. Um, and so money was always a point of stress. And uh, my dad always, in particular, always had this drive to, to be better and to be better and, and instilled that in, in, me and um ensuring even things like you know homework and it must be done and and having manners and and those core values which which are key and then seeing him progress in his mm. career and working so hard and that's instilled those right values in me um i think the other big thing for me is about choices um i think having lived all around the world and you see so many people who just simply don't have choices um it's such a privilege and i drill this into my kids all the time that you we, we've been given this immense privilege of where we have what we've been born into and, and 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 the resources that we have and so to use those choices widely and to keep enabling that environment i think is key i i couldn't agree more and and i think that it's so easy of course to think that uh you know times are tough things are hard you know what is it that we can do how can we how can we keep going but you're absolutely right the majority of people in this world don't have even the option 
to consider what uh, what they uh, should do or whether um, you know whether they like this or or don't like that. Um, it's a, it's a matter of survival. So I think I think that is that is a key point. So you feel that that is just kind of really just shaped you um, to to you know continue to keep working. So would you say that that is still the thing that kind of gets you up out of bed every day? Yeah, and I and I think again I have this I have an amazing job where you know there are very few people who are working you know properly working in the field of ESG where they you know have the ability to influence a company like Deloitte with with such a massive massive global network spend power etc and so kind of reminding myself which is not always easy but reminding myself that you know I do have as a woman I have a seat at the table I um I, I'm, I'm technically sound in this area my stakeholders listen to me and and I can start to make a difference so it's about remembering to use that opportunity as well let's let's uh, kind of uh, dip into that uh, about your um your status as a woman when when you joined the firm was was it such uh you know a kind of equal opportunity uh in terms of being able to have um a, a say um no i mean the the UK, you know, back in in the early two thousands, late late nineties, was a very very different place to where it is now. And I, I think that there was a real dearth of, of of role model, female role models. You know, I I can remember kind of one or two that really made an impact. And and then and those were you know people who were really like one of them, for example, came back to work four days after giving birth. You know, just because she she couldn't take the time or felt that she couldn't take the time. Um, you know, an environment where there was a lot of banter, where sexual harassment was high, not not particularly in Deloitte, but in, you know, in the in the London environment and, and that, you know, dress codes of what women should wear and how women should behave, you know, is outrageous, really, when you think about it. Um, and actually, I, it, what, what I feel I, in a way coming into Korea, I feel like I'm almost reliving some of that. Um, okay. And because but now I'm I'm one of the people who who should be a role model. Um you know, I, I, you know, I'm in in this environment which is very male dominated, but I see a lot of what women coming up who simply don't have enough female role models to help guide them. And it comes back to that network piece of if you're going to progress in any organisation, you need to have people who are who are supporting you, who've got your back, who are advocating for you. And if all of those people are are men, you know, of course some men will absolutely do that my husband does you do uh, many of the men I work with do but actually it's so much easier if you have you can relate to that person the experience they're going through and I think the the way you know women's empowerment is lacking definitely in Korea and so far creating those opportunities is going to be key um, and especially coming you know I think that's why the issue with childbirth is so relevant and at the minute is because people are pushing back against that to say I don't want to take time out of my career I want to progress um, and and not have to deal with the pressures that's that that puts upon them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I always come back to it being such a a, a terrible irony that up until um, tertiary education, there, there's pretty much equality, right? In terms of um, you know good, you know highly qualified, smart, fresh grads. Um, yeah. it's it's pretty much 50 50 and, and yeah. in some countries slightly higher female graduation rate in fact and then a path just uh, starts of of uh, going off um, off track if, if you like where 
um, it it deteriorates, and then mm. and then it gets inc- increasingly worse and worse and worse as we progress through age and then also seniority, especially in organisations. Um, so it makes it somehow worse in a way that the, the talent's there. It's just not being capitalized on. And, and, you know, maybe that is exactly kind of what we mentioned already about retention. You know, mm. if, if we could retain, I mean, especially in Korea where, uh, after the, the first child, the, the female participation rate just drops off a cliff and doesn't come back. You know, I mean, that, that is automatically taking a huge chunk um, of the workforce um, out. And so that's something we can work on. But on that, I've got I've got this interesting analogy, which is in in when we lived in Tanzania, that the traffic was horrendous, absolutely horrendous, and um, in Dar es Salaam. But the president would come through and they would clear all the roads. And so every time he went through, there was no traffic. So it was an easy journey right. for him. And so there was this raging debate happening all the time between the government and the people, which is he would they would say, well, there's no there's no traffic problem in in Tanzania. And everyone would be like, oh, there's a massive traffic problem in Tanzania. But because one, you know, the decision makers weren't seeing and feeling the problem, the change never happened. And it's exactly the same with gender pay gap and women's empowerment. If if you continue to have a, a workforce that is top heavy with with men they're not going to experience the same problems that the women are experiencing and so they won't have the empathy in order to drive the change um especially if you know there's differing opinions at home or they've made conscious decisions about their family setup you know it, it they human nature is you represent what typically what your unit is about um and it takes a very mature person to kind of look beyond um beyond your window and see what what influence you can change yeah yeah um in your in your work uh, so i mean of course uh the, the level of equality within your uh your firm uh, is is relatively good compared to perhaps mm. some other sectors but i'm sure that maybe some of your clients are in those much uh worse performing kind of uh sectors the 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 ones which um are so much more traditionally male dominated is that then something that you come up against you know have you ever uh, you know almost literally kind of been held back um you know when it comes to client facing work is that something you you've kind of literally come up against um so i i personally haven't um as yeah i i haven't experienced that i've typically um i think having a, a technical expertise is helpful um as well and i and i think the seniority is is good i think where i've um seen it is in my personal life actually where when i lived in when we lived in mozambique i took a break um because i just had two kids and um felt like i was at crossroads in my career and because i'd taken this break i was trying to figure out what i was doing and it was so fascinating how I immediately was given this identity by our peer group, actually, of being the training spouse. And I would, it, and I was probably very sensitive to it. Um, but I would walk into a room and no one would want to speak to me. No one would ask me what I did or what I was doing. The assumption was I was, you know, a lady who lunched, who was following my very impressive husband around the world and, uh, and raising the children, which 
you know, I'm not nothing against, but it wasn't who I was or wasn't who I wanted to be. And that mm. judgment really, oh, it really bothered, made my blood boil. Um, that there was these kind of very classical assumptions made upon particularly women, but some men as well, um, of, of what your role should be if you, if you weren't defined by this job title. Um, fascinating. And, and so I set about with, with some peers to, to change that. And, and, but again, it was not so much about changing that voice and that judgment, but around kind of trying to prove to ourselves that we had, um, that we were successful and had a voice and et cetera. So, but I think it is, yeah, it's a, it's a common problem, I would say. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the definition of a person by their job title mm-hmm. is something that is rampant and, and I, 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 I hate it. Um, I, I try to encourage people to not introduce themselves by yeah. their company and title. I, you know, I understand that, um, sometimes it, you know, it, does serve as a door opener it does serve as uh, a way to gain uh, recognition but um, mm. it's, it's interesting to hear that that immediate uh, kind of transition was um, was was apparent and so was it around about that time when you uh, when you you know dipped into the entrepreneurial life and and decided to develop an app tell us a bit about that yeah so there's uh, an absolutely amazing one of the highlights of my career actually um has a, a, a dear friend Hannah Eames and I set up uh, an app the, the problem that we were trying to solve was um we were working mums um and uh, working dads and we wanted to have flexible childcare that didn't involve paying for a nanny at, you know, whatever, £50,000 a year. But it needed to work around those, the schedules of two working parents or not just working parents, but that was the, the kind of baseline. But it needed to work to allow flexibility, flexibility for families. Um, so we developed an app that was basically, a, a, you know, like a, a, a babysitting booking app, very simple, uh, where you could, um, key in what you wanted whether it be after school care or evening care and quite simply it would send out to a network so you would befriend trusted child carers so the idea being you and I would join we would both put our trusted child carers on I trust you ergo I trust your decisions on child care and then you you go from having one babysitter to having two three four babysitters um, so really cool model and that kind of domino effect um, but as we were, we'd just get it all ready, we'd launch, we'd built it and, uh, then COVID hit. Um, and no one was going out. And as a, as a startup, you, you need investment, you need a runway, um, and you need a business model that works beyond a pandemic. Um, and so, uh, the investment needed to keep it going was not, was not feasible, unfortunately. Um, but maybe another time in a different world, we'd we'd do it again. I mean, obviously, you, you could never have anticipated that 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 kind of timing. Um, have you, you know, uh, secured some intellectual property around that? Um, I, I'm sure you keep your eye on on seeing whether 
similar apps have since appeared yeah and there are there are competitors that are that are doing well it's um no we put it down to um a learning a great learning experience and actually hannah and i made an amazing team very different personality types and 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 that kind of like you say in the terms of getting stuff done being able to allocate tasks according to to strengths was really key for us to be able to work in a really agile way um so yeah unfortunately we we put it to bed um for the time being uh, but we've got many many lessons from it that's fantastic i mean and definitely definitely part of uh, part of the journey and you know you now uh, in your role you are managing a team so your performance is uh, to a large extent dependent on the performance of your team yeah. um tell us a little bit about your your journey as a leader um how you've come to try to um, define your own leadership style, what, what that is and, and how you help others to kind of get stuff done whilst you yourself are, are, are getting stuff done. Yeah. And, and I think this, so I work quite flexibly over a, a team across Asia. Um, so I work with eight different geographies and, and all of my team, uh, my Asia Pacific team are based online. So that adds an interesting dimension. Um, so I'll focus on that because I think that's, that's um, where it needs different, a very different style. Um, so I think for me, it's kind of three, three big, maybe four big things. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is around empathy. And so, and this is something I've definitely matured um, as I've progressed through the firm. I think I went from being a very much a like, just get, get stuff done, get stuff done, get stuff done. Um, almost not robotic, but very driven to now being able to see beyond what my work stream is and and to see the bigger picture um, mm-hmm. and what the connecting points are and I think having having that kind of more helicopter view and the empathy of people within the helicopter view is really important um, and being able to adjust my style um, to get the best from others um, and has has been absolutely key to to my success, I think. And that that leads me nicely onto the second thing was is about network. I think anyone, uh, well, I don't know any successful leaders that have done it on their own. All the all the leaders that I uh, I uh, I uh, respect and admire have always got a really good support network around them, and they they don't believe they can do it all. They will farm it out, uh, delegate use the resources that they have to get the best from others but quite often they have a really strong network um and so and that doesn't mean they've got all you know millions of best friends it's just that they use their network very well they take the time to invest in those relationships whether it's asking about someone's children or um following up when you say you're going to follow up um and being really respectful in in terms of delivering on what you say then third i would say um it's my 80-20 rule, although maybe my boss wouldn't agree. <laughs> but I think um, it's really important that, um, and with something I try and teach my kids, that failure shouldn't be seen as a negative. And actually, we get the best results and creativity when we when we remain agile and not 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 strive for perfect. Strive for quality, but not necessarily strive for perfection. And so I do. That tend to follow an 80-20 rule that, you know, sometimes you, you got to get stuff done and we can perfect it later if we need to. But actually, if we're going to get 
things mobilized, then you've got to be prepared to turn things around quickly, not be afraid of making mistakes and don't necessarily get too bogged down in the detail. And then finally, I would say kind of linking all of these together, it it probably comes down to trust. Like as as a leader, one of the things I've got better at doing is trusting others that just because it's they're not doing it my way doesn't mean that it's not you know it's not going to get done in the right way um it's a big one with my husband actually so he never does it my way so I have to continually trust him that he's going to do it um so yeah I think they're the, they're kind of more the, the four big things that I've I've been working on as a leader okay so I'd like to I'd like to kind of uh go into a, a bit more detail on uh, your network, uh, the network aspect. Is, is that something that, what is it that you're doing on a, on a regular basis to make sure that you have that um, useful network, that, that well-developed network? What, what are some of the actual very tangible, um, very specific things that, that you do to try to uh, cultivate that, that network? Yeah, good question. I so I did a um, amazing leadership course. Um, it was called the uh, Decelerator course, actually, uh, with a chap called Gib Bullock, uh, who's written a book on on this. And he runs a, a a week long course out in Scotland. You go on to this very remote place, and you are the 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 rule. The number one rule is you're not allowed to define yourself by your identity. Um, and so it by your job description, sorry. So it um, forces you to ask more intelligent questions and describe yourself in different ways. And and through that experience, um, it was it, I found a couple of things. One, um, the difference between yes, yes, and and no. So and I I think these principles are really good for building a network. Okay. So having the confidence to say yes to things, even when you might not feel comfortable. Um, having the ability to say yes and to build a network and to collaborate. So yes, and let's do a podcast and write an article about it to kind of show that extra mile and give more to a relationship and then being very clear on the no. So actually a lot of networks and relationships are built when you are firm on what a no is. Um, and and not being afraid actually to set very clear boundaries with your relationships in order to gain trust in that network. Um, so that was quite a cool tool set that I took away from that in order to build out that network. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess yeah. you've lived in so many different countries. What, what are some of the different cultural aspects of building relationships and, and, and getting stuff done in very, very unfamiliar circumstances, maybe even right here in Korea, where we're, where we're both uh, sitting uh, today. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I, I, I sometimes feel um, like I have split personalities on, on some days. Um, I suppose because some days I can go from talking to Australia, uh, to Japan, to Singapore, to Korea, to the UK, to the US. Um, okay. And and actually, all, they represent very, very different cultures and very different working styles. Um, sure. And so we might have one single objective, but the way of achieving that objective is very different. Um, the way of getting buy-in and stakeholder engagement is very different. Um, so I think how I've overcome the challenges is to really, is to try and spend a little bit of time listening. Um, I think 
you know, it's a very classic consultant that we have all the answers and we jump in. And, and I certainly used to do that when I was when I was younger. But I think stepping back a little bit and listening and um, understanding what individuals need to be successful, because um, I find people generally want to be helpful. Mm. Um, quite often barriers are put up when they feel threatened or overloaded or, you know, overwhelmed or just don't simply understand the context of which you're coming from. So stopping and listening and taking the time to adjust my style to theirs has been um, a really important lesson for me in living in different cultures. Yeah, that whole I mean, um, business yeah. chemistry. Yeah, uh, and it seems you you you're very much aware of being adaptable and 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 being you know situationally uh, changeable depending on 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 where you're at. What what would you say for you has been the toughest business environment to to operate in? for you oh oh i don't know probably the uk back in the early 2000s i would say okay, okay. Um, unexpected but, but yeah please. i yeah i think because actually you know as a kind of bright young woman wanting to be heard and then not necessarily having the the support structure around you is quite intimidating okay. um and i think you know i think that confidence and ability to get the cut through and to progress is only comes when you you have have that ability you know you have the support to learn and to grow mm. um, and I've had that in la- latter years so I've been able to kind of cope with those situations a lot better than putting them but you just simply sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and I think when you're starting out in your career um, it, that was probably the most challenging when I look back on it okay all right a bit of a, a classic follow-up question then if you could go back in time would you do anything differently no I'm a, you know I'm a firm believer and you don't mess with what's gone by <laughs> so um there's a, a book my mother's reading about uh the one minute coffee or something it's called and it's about uh-huh. what would you go back and check if you would change one thing um so no I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with anything serendipity is my favorite word um so I would, I think, you know, obviously there are lots of things that I would probably approach differently. Probably far, far fewer tears would have been shed. Um, but I, I'm pretty by you good at, or, or by others, typically by me. <laughs> um, but um, I'm pretty good at reflecting and, and realizing that you know you got to learn from these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your 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 specialty field now, ESG. I know it's something you're very uh, passionate about. I know it's something that you yep. post regularly on LinkedIn. So if anyone is specifically interested, please please do connect with uh, Nicola. Um, you know, beyond this this podcast, uh, you know, tell me what it is that in your work uh, that you're able to do to try to to kind of move the needle or, or at least advance these issues. Yeah, so I, I wear two very different hats. I think um, let, I'll talk about my career hat. And I, I think what's um, quite exciting about where I'm at in career is one, I'm a, a female leader as, as a minority. Um, I'm a, a minority in that I am a Western woman. Um, and um, I can, yeah, I know ESG inside and out and have experience in applying that in a UK and European setting. So I have quite a lot of context to give for uh, a country who are fairly behind on ESG, but very much interested. Um, so I see it as a, a, um, 
as a unique opportunity of of my position mm-hmm. um, to be able to say that yes and quite a lot. And so I, I feel like in career, I've been exposed to lots of really cool opportunities of being able to present or create partnerships where you, you can come to the table with with ideas and, and they're being adopted pretty quickly um, because there is that appetite there. Uh, so that's what I really enjoy. And then at, from an Asia side, um, I get the opportunity to work across all these different geographies. And again, who are all at very different steps of maturity when it comes to ESG and, and are facing lots of different challenges from, you know, New Zealand, which is, is small um, and, and the, the government is well advanced when it comes to ESG to somewhere like China or Japan, who are on, you know, coming up, but are, are, a, a different aspects of things like transition to clean energy and things like that. Um, and so actually applying um, lots of different skill sets to different scenarios is, is really interesting okay. on how we can help move that dial. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can see that could be an enormous challenge. Uh, it is uh, with many different uh, countries at, at different stages and, and different appetites. And then, not least the the differences when it comes to you know scale budgets regulation and all of that so um i i can see where you definitely have um a lot of uh, work uh to 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 do in that in that area um mm. coming back now to to getting stuff done on a, on a, almost like a daily basis you have a a, a big job uh, as a partner with deloitte you have a husband who also has a relatively high profile job as the deputy ambassador to uh, Korea um, and two children as as well. And I also have two children, and I know that that having two children is already a full time job in itself. So, um, so tell us a little bit about uh, about how you um, kind of uh, structure your day, your week, um, and and how you're able to to you know you said you're wearing two hats at work. Um, and all the other hats as well. Yeah, I so I'm very old school. I I love a, a beautiful notebook and a, a nice pen, um, and I I tend to write everything down that I need to do, and and I'm quite meticulous in my to do list. Um, okay. We we have a family calendar to make sure um, we are we're doing. We have probably between four and seven, eight events in every week. And so juggling that is pretty full on. Um, so making sure that the calendar is up to date is key as well. So just being really organized. Um, okay. I also run uh, the Eisenhower model, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, of urgent, Love important, urgent, not important. And I try and instill that in my team as well. Of, of for, those, really for those who don't know what the Eisenhower model is, can you just give us a quick rundown? Yeah, so it's, um, in its most simple terms, it's a, a, a quadrat and it's um, what's urgent and important. That's what you need to be focusing your time. Then you've got urgent, not important. So typically that's things that you're, you know, someone very important is asking for. And you need to just get it done. Important, yep. Yep. but not urgent typically requires brain time. And then not urgent, not important. Uh, you want to get that delegated or completely yep. off the list. And so I, I work with that structure. Um, both in our admin, so we have a fa- family admin, and then um, we have also, you know, in my day-to-day work as well. And then I get my team members to do the same approach. Um, I'm not a fan of big plans, um, as my team would probably testament, but I am a fan of of to-do lists. And I think I, I read somewhere about um, 
when you have things in your brain, your brain spends its time processing the to-do list. And actually, if you write things down, your brain, you free up brain space to be able to focus okay. on what needs to be done. And uh, right. I have this awful this habit kind of, of mental download. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of right, you're telling your brain this has been put on paper. It's being dealt with and now frees up capacity to do the thinking side. And um, I hate when I get, get into bed, I tend it's like my downtime and I tend to process then. And so I'll, I'll okay. quite often have a list of things that need to be done that help that aren't on my to do list. So I have pen and paper by the side of my bed um, to try and get them out of my head so I can focus on just going to sleep. Okay, yeah, that's typically how my brain works. So you you do keep a a pen and paper near the bed for those moments. Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, Okay. I don't know what that says about me. No, I mean that's exactly what I wanted to find out. Uh, The 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 thing that works for you, um, because uh, everybody has their their own thing. Um, One of my my previous guests said that um, she uh, on the night mode of her phone. Uh, she uh, it's automatically set to say don't do it so when she picks up her phone at night and she's tempted to to look at her phone and it just she's just confronted with don't do it and she she just remembers yeah okay I shouldn't I shouldn't be I shouldn't be looking at it that's why I have the pen and paper because we've we've decided to lock the phones away um, because otherwise I'm on my phone okay you get them out, yeah. And now I'm I'm still guilty of um, thinking that I'm I might be able to do something productive when I'm lying horizontal after midnight on a tiny screen. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, something that that I need to to try to work towards. But um, uh, Nicola, I think we're pretty much out of time now. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's just not enough time. We've we've covered so many different topics within a short space of time. So thank you for being uh, agile and able to to jump around the different aspects of uh, your career and uh, your your uh, experiences. And and thank you so much for sharing your insights on the many different environments that you've you've worked in. Thank you for being a guest today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Gordon. And thank you to everybody for watching and listening. Uh, once again uh, on the Get Stuff Done podcast. If you have not yet uh, subscribed, then uh, what are you doing? Um, you need to uh, get that done. Uh, please subscribe on, on your favorite platform so that you can be updated with all the future episodes as they come out on a weekly basis. But thanks again for listening and watching and hope to see you again on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Get Stuff Done podcast. If you would like to be a guest in the future, please do reach out. Or if you would like to recommend someone, that would be awesome as well. Make sure you keep listening as we will be bringing you fresh insights every week because getting stuff done is something everyone needs.